Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Joining me on the phone is, of course, uh, Alan Niven. Uh, bonjour, Alain. How are you? Oh, bright and bubbly <laughs> as ever. I know. I know. Getting up at noon is, is, is getting tougher and tougher. But uh, anyway, uh, let us get over also to our guest from the Mighty Firehouse. It is a guitarist, Bill Leverty. Bonjour, Bill. How are you? Bonjour, Mitch and Alan. Thanks for having me on the show. And I, too, got up at the crack of noon, so don't feel bad, Alan. <laughs> That's right. Oh, my Lord. Uh, Bill, did you, Bill, did you have to use an old-fashioned alarm clock, or do you have someone who comes in and shakes you on the shoulder and, and tells you? <laughs> yeah, my pool boy comes in and shakes me on the shoulder. Right. I don't have a pool. Yeah? No, I just, uh, I just, you know, I get up late. I, I was up till probably 3 a.m. last night. And I have insomnia, so, uh, you know, it just, I sleep late. I think I'm just a nocturnal guy. You're like a raccoon. You just, thinking, <laughs> just stay up all night. It's called insomnia now? Yes. I, I thought it was called just, just being a rock and roller and being determined not to waste your life away working on normal things. Yeah, well, that, and there's a better diagnosis right there. I, I prefer yours. Yeah, in the 90s, it was called being a rock and roller. In the 2020s, it's called insomnia. Anyway, we we are here, of course, to talk music. Bill has a new album out called Divided We Fall. And uh, Bill, let me start with, with this whole notion of making new music, because you have been active, putting out solo album after solo album and singles. And you, and you make great deals, by the way. If you go to the website at, at Leverty.com, you say, hey, folks, if you donate a, a buck, I'll send you like three or four songs. It's 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 wonderful. But uh, talk to me about this creative urge because the the main gig Firehouse. I mean, you're stuck on neutral with them. Not not to be offensive, but you're stuck on neutral with them. But you're you're still you, you still want to make new music, right? Yeah, and we all do in Firehouse. We all want to make a record. It's just tough for us uh, because we all live in different states. And we did sixty shows a year last year. They were all fly dates, so we got up at 3 a.m. On a, on a Friday morning to fly to Atlanta to change a plane to get somewhere. Then we get in a van for three hours. Then we set up the gig, and then we do a sound check. We might have time for dinner and a shower. And then we play the gig, and, and we get back in our bed at, you know, at 2 a.m. if we're lucky, and then we got to get up at 3 a.m. again. If we get a chance to go to, to go to bed, sometimes we have to get up before we even go to bed. And uh, well, we, like- we get in the van and drive, drive back to the airport and then do another gig somewhere else for the Saturday night. And sometimes we do three or four in a row like that. And so we come home and we're all dead tired. And we're, we're too tired to, to write anything and too tired to record anything. So uh, when, it, when there's a little bit of time um, in between projects or in between gigs or whatever, I, if I have an inspiration, uh, I try to go down to my studio and record it. And um, that's kind of how these songs happen. Yeah, and and of course you, you you've done sort of every kind of genre. Some some of the of the stuff wouldn't work for Firehouse. You know, when you're doing Southern Exposure or Deep South, those albums that are more, well, uh, traditional country. If they, and some of them not even country, they're more just like almost folksy. Um, talk to me now about about getting back to Divided We Fall, which is more of of a a standard rock album, and and being, you know, a solo rock artist at this point. Well, this is a long. Um record to 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 finish i started six years ago when i came up with the first song i released it as a single and then i did a bunch of firehouse dates i mixed some people's albums i recorded some people in my studio and then i got another idea for a song and then i recorded that one 
and then so that finally the tenth song took me a long time to finish. I had the melody, I had the the um, the chords behind it, and I just couldn't figure out what I wanted to sing about. And then I decided on the um, I guess it's a cliche: "United We Stand, Divided We Fall." And um, so I thought that would be a pretty cool thing. And then what really prompted me to to really finish that song because it's it's kind of easy to start a song it's really hard to finish a song uh what prompted me to finish it was all the um uh the the COVID-19 crisis that broke out and then all the divisiveness that that followed I thought well gosh if we could all just come together and find common ground on something then we can do so much together but divided we fall and I thought that would be a cool thing to write about united we stand divided we fall and what do you know? I finished it and became the title track for the album because it, it felt relevant to me. And and here we are talking about it. I appreciate your your time. Your time, uh, Alan. Let me let me turn to you for a second. Uh, when did you first become aware of Firehouse? Because you know Guns and Roses at the time was leading the charge into sort of a new, dirty, sleazy rock and roll, and 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 way ahead of the curve. And Firehouse w- was coming. And, and Bill, I don't mean this in a, in, a, in a bad way, but you were coming at the end of sort of the hair thing and you were lumped in with those guys, unjustly, I would say. Um, but uh, talk to me about, Alan, about how you first heard of Firehouse and, and, you know, what they meant at that time. Oh, good God. I think I first heard of, heard of Firehouse. I hate to do this to you, Bill, because uh, you sound much younger and more vital than I am. You know, so for us to have... A, any sort of sense of age equivalency is uh, a bit rough on you. Um, <laughs> Firehouse, I think I first heard of Firehouse when I think Barbara Skydell. Um, yeah. At yep, Premier. Yeah. Yeah. She she was she was going to uh, uh, take take the band on and. Um, I think she might have tried to get my opinion on it for 30 seconds or something. So, I mean, good God, how how long ago is that? Um, That's I like 30 years ago. That, that, well, okay, then we're, we're going we're gonna to go um, quantum, and we're going to say that time and space bend, and it was theoretically a long time ago on a calendar, right. but in the spirit of it, it's just, Yesterday, it ain't that long ago. Yeah. Well, it was about we'll 80, we'll say, 89, we'll, I guess, right? We'll say that, the, yeah, between the three of us, we're, we're bending space and time, and it's not that long ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, let me, since we're throwing out names, um, Bill, talk to me a little bit about this guy, Michael Kaplan. Uh, who was he, and, and what did he mean to the band in its formative years? Well, after all the other major labels came out and saw us and passed on us, we fooled Michael into thinking that <laughs> there was a bidding war going on with us. Uh, we, we had gotten him a tape, and he said it captured his interest, and we fooled him into thinking that there were other labels that were interested. Which ones was the obvious question? And I said, uh, actually, I, I can't. I've been sworn to secrecy on that, Michael, but come on down and see us. And he came flew down to uh, a show we did in, in December in Charlotte, North Carolina that night. We had a terrible ice storm, so I was surprised his plane even landed, much less his taxi even made it to the club where there were 
I'm guessing there weren't even enough people to start a fight in that club that night. Um, other than our girlfriends, there might have been five other people that made it. And uh, he saw the band, and um, he came back after our set, and he said, you guys are ready for a record deal. And we were like, great. Well, he, he put us in touch with David Prater, who became our producer. He, you know, he said, you guys, we want to see if you're compatible with him and if he's compatible with you. And David had us uh, stay at his place and record in his basement all the songs for the album. David reported back to Michael Kaplan that we could record the, the album and come in under budget. So Michael then got the, the papers over to our attorney. We signed. And um, after that, he really let us do our thing. He really never, as an A&R guy, I always figured, you know, these guys, it's their job to push you and to push you where you don't necessarily want to go. But he just let us be ourselves. He let David Prater make the record here and David Prater didn't push us in any way either. Uh, Doug Oberkirker, the engineer did a fantastic job too. And, and we made the record that we wanted to make, but David made it sound great. So Michael Kaplan, I think his role was to just kind of oversee the project, make sure we didn't go too crazy, but he didn't change any lyrics. He didn't, he didn't change anything. He was, he was really a, a great A&R guy. A great A&R guy. So, so let me ask you this, because when, when you look up the band Firehouse on the internet, and you go especially to Wikipedia, it describes the band as glee being an American glam metal band. And, and I, I don't buy that as a description. But at that time, was there a lot of pressure in terms of imagery and you had to look a certain way and you had to act a certain way? Because I, I've always felt, much like Cinderella or Tesla, you're more of just a, a down-home rock band and not one of these glitzy, glamoury, all-flash-in-the-pan kind of things. Um, how, much was, how, much, how much was image emphasized when you signed and when you were trying to become the firehouse that we all know now? It wasn't at all. And going back to that Wikipedia um, thing is I've tried to change that uh, every bit of 15 times and it just keeps going back to this glam. I just want to say American rock band, but for some reason, I mean, I guess anybody can put the word glam in your Wikipedia page and then, then it's glam. But when we got signed, you know, we did a, our first video for Don't Treat Me Bad and it was jeans and t-shirts, which is what we were wearing on stage before. And then after that song broke into the top 40, they said, hey, we want to re-record a, a new video for that song. We're going to hook you up with Ozzy Stylist, and we're going to re-record Don't Treat Me Bad, and we're, then we're going to record Love of a Lifetime. And she brought us in these great-looking clothes, and we were thinking, man, we've made it. Look at, look at this shirt I'm wearing, you know? Look at these custom pants I'm wearing. Hell yeah, you know? And so who uh, was your label? Epic. Oh, Okay. Sorry to interrupt. Go on. Yeah, no, no, but no, listen, all, at all, least it's all, not all. MCA. Epic at least had some uh, rock knowledge, right? Yeah, <laughs> and so we were really happy uh, about uh, this stylist, and she was great, you know? And um, we, we re-recorded, we did another version of Don't Treat Me Bad, and we loved it. It turned out great. But you look at the way that the band looks in the first video versus the way we looked in the second video after the song became a hit, you can see that we were dressed up a little bit. The following day, we recorded uh, the video for Love of a Lifetime, and same stylist and everything, just different clothes and everything. And um, you could tell that 
we were dressed up a little more. So I don't know. They had a little bit of influence in it, but we, as young guys who were excited about a record deal, were excited about this, this, this new jacket I got that they gave me, you know, which I paid for, I guess, in, my, in recruitment. But it, it, was, it, was, it was fun, and we were excited about it. It was Ozzy Stylus, for crying out loud, you know? Uh, by the way, I have to say, I'm surprised that no band has ever called an album Recoupment or Recoup, because that, that would just be such a funny title. Hey, um, cross-collateralization is one. I've got a whole... <laughs> I don't want to talk about. <laughs> you've got you've got a, a box set worth of material on that on that topic. Um, That's right. In yeah, fact, a box, a box set, but it's a coffin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, Alan, just real quick, in, in terms of imagery, because Guns N' Roses always seem to be sort of the anti-image. You know, they were they 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 dress different than than the Bon Jovi's and the Def Leppard's and the ripped jeans. Was that costuming? in a sense, or were they just guys who dressed the way they dressed and nobody bothered them? Uh, did you see Axel's hair in a video called Welcome to the Jungle? Yes, it was terrific. Tease me, please me. Like a <laughs> Yeah, like well, the... you know, every time every time he used to do that, Duffy used to come into the room and look at him and go, nice hair, dude, you know, with, with <laughs> dripping with sarcasm. Um <laughs> You know, so thank God that went. And no, we didn't go and go down and spend a whole bunch of money on Ray Brown clothes um, before doing the uh, the video. Um, my philosophy with that particular band was that Guns N' Roses be Guns N' Roses. There is an accumulative attitude there that is so full of spite and contempt for everybody else i do not wish to screw with it um you know so it very very much from a creative point of view i mean there were moments when you know you had to sit them down and say listen you go verse chorus verse chorus verse chorus in the song do something to break that up it's not working for me so you know slash comes up with a little musical interlude for for jungle but in general, um, it was protect them and let them be who they were. And part of, a major part of that for me was um, my faith in Izzy um, and my confidence in Izzy and my relationship with Izzy. Because as far as I was concerned, Izzy had an unimpeachable attitude. And he'd already gone through the excesses of being glamorous. There are photographs around that show it. But he just hit a perfect groove for me. Um, you know, I, we were, before we went on air, we were just talking about that Stones thing. Um, the only G&R thing I have in my home. Well, no, I have two. I have a photograph of Izzy and Keith and... Um, on stage at uh, Atlantic City, Izzy, Keith, and Ronnie, and I have a f picture of um, Izzy and uh, Slash in my office, but that's it. Izzy had that absolutely perfect rock and roll attitude. attitude. Yeah, he still, so, he still does, actually. Yeah. And, and by the way, since, uh, since we mentioned the Rolling Stone thing, they are releasing a Steel Wheels live concert uh, from December 1989 with uh, Axl Rose, Izzy, Eric Clapton, and others. 
that it comes out in uh, September. But uh, Bill, uh, we are talking about about songwriting there. He, you know, uh, he was saying verse, chorus, verse, chorus. How do you approach it as as a solo artist when you're doing an album like uh, Divided We Fall? And is it different than how you approach it when writing for Firehouse? No, I just, I just, if an idea came to my head that was worth pursuing to to the bitter end, I would pursue it. And if it was okay, I'd write it down in my little book, uh, my little hook book, and move on. And it, some of these ideas come while you're in the shower, and um, you go, wow, you know, it's, it doesn't really seem like that's a really how about the great car, idea. Bill? The car, I guess I get a few in the car, but it's, I probably get more when I'm not driving because my, my brain is more thinking about driving. If, if I'm, well, that's, if I'm, that's why I ask because when, when, I, when I've been, in, been pressed and put into a corner and someone's been trying to coerce some sort of insight from me about, for example, how to deal with writer's block, mm. um, I'd point out that in my own small experience, my best friend had always been fatigue. That when I was mm. really tired was when something interesting would come. So I did a little bit of analysis and thought about this. And at one point he even bought uh, this weird machine that would give off um, tones and you could play a CD in the machine at the same time. You know, so I'd, I'd be... <laughs> It was recommended I listen to this guy called Scriabin for something, you know. And what I was trying to do was I was trying to get some sort of influence over alpha wave activity and beta wave activity. Mm. In that, if I tried to write something when I was of clear mind, I'd come up with the cliche and the predictable and the obvious. But if I tried to write something when I was tired or driving, for example, um, things would pop. And the explanation that I had for that was that if you were driving, your alpha wave activity in your head was concentrating on dealing with the machine, which allowed beta wave activity to come through from, from say, let's call it the back of your head. So like when you're fatigued, your alpha waves are low, your beta waves are higher. And that's when the more interesting things came and the more interesting things popped. And That it, is fascinating. You know, I love I, the fact... Go ahead. Yeah. I say that is fascinating. I, I really believe in, in the science of that. And I, you know, as you were describing that, I did s see some parallels in what I was working on for the last six years in finishing this album in, uh, you know, just utter exhaustion um, of, like I was describing earlier, of, of waking up at 3 a.m. If I had a chance to sleep the night before and then doing that for three days, most of our dates are fly dates. So I'm on a plane with nothing but my phone and a pair of headphones. And uh, I often took little notes into the notepad in my phone of ideas that came, uh, you know, lyrical ideas and, you know, whatnot. And I found that, that they did come a lot on, the, on that plane. And I, I was exhausted uh, a lot when I, was <laughs> when I was working on this album. So that, that, uh, I do see some truth in that. Um, Bill, well, it, it worked for it worked for me. It worked for, and it seemed to work for the people who I passed that on to. And uh, of course, the other step, and you know, this is where we start getting to expressing things that you know most people roll their eyes at. But I will say that Keith um, of the Rolling Stones 
um, has put it in his own words succinctly that when asked where he gets his inspirations from and so on and so forth, I think he used the analogy of an antenna, mate. It just sort of comes through me fucking antenna in the back of the head. I'm not sure where it comes from. It comes, you know, and then it's in the head, um, which I think is his very sly and clever way of saying that the best things that he's ever written, uh, you almost wonder whether the, they generate within your own mind or whether you're touched by something that... Uh, mm. There's, mm-hmm. there's a little bit of the divine that touches your head. Um, if you're into reading about things like the Akashic Records, um, in more recent times in conversations with other writers, I've speculated and wondered whether there is such a thing and that when we write to our best, we are momentarily touched by that. And of course, in my mind, I see that uh, Michelangelo painting in, in Rome where the two fingers almost touch. Oh, and yeah, and you, you wonder sometimes, you wonder sometimes, is it, is it me or is it divine memorex? Um, I don't know. What do you think? I think it's the divine. I believe what you're saying is that uh, the, the songs are written. We're just receivers. And I believe that God writes the songs. We're just receivers and we're, you got to open your. Well, I got to tell that one. Now, now I got. Now I got to tell you something else. Um, and it's uh, and on the one part, it's an, an apology. You sent me your record to listen to. I couldn't get yeah. past the first song, and I'll tell you why I couldn't get past the first song. And I cannot remember how long it's been since I've had a reaction like this, or even had this reaction. But when the resolving line in the chorus hit, I actually burst out fucking laughing. I thought it was brilliant. And I absolutely love it. I absolutely love it. And it's the longest time since a song has made me feel that energized that somebody else has written. And there's something divine about that because it's an instant connection to what you were writing and what you were saying. And you totally fucking suckered me in. I was going, okay, okay, I'm going with it. I'm going with it. And then the final line in the chorus came and I just fucking lost it. And I went, that is so goddamn perfect. That is a Man. brilliant piece of writing. I love it. Oh, thank you so much, Alan. That means so much to me. I'm, I'm shaking hearing that coming from you with, with all you've done with your writing. And, no, and, uh, no, I mean, it, it's just, you know, one person to another, but that's, that's the essence of songwriting in, in you know, as it is, but it just flat out made me laugh. I thought it was oh, cool. so clever and so well constructed, and I should have seen it coming with with, with the title of, of the song. And there was a part of me might have seen it coming and might have gone. I wonder if he's going to go there. But the delivery of when that final line gets there, and I'm not going to say it because I want people to go and find it and listen to it for themselves. <laughs> but when that final line got there, I just fucking lost it. I went, that's brilliant. Uh, well, thanks, man. I'm a big fan of the punchline and uh, the little curly Q twist at the end, and and that one just worked its way um, in there somehow just by thinking. I, you know, I, I didn't really do anything special to have it come to mind. It just did. So I do believe it was divine intervention. It, it, it is. So. Yeah, it's a great. It's a great track. I, I do want to ask you this before before we we get wrapped up here. Uh, speaking, uh, Michael Foster, your your drummer in Firehouse. Uh, 
he was interviewed about the band and talking about you and stuff. And he he said that when he came to audition for White Heat, he said, you know what? Bill had really short hair and a mustache at the time. And I thought, man, this guy doesn't look rock and roll. But he could play the guitar. I've never seen anybody play like that. He was playing Eddie Van Halen's Eruption. And I was like, oh, God, this guy is good. Um, first of all, re react to what Michael said there. But also... Talk to me about, about Van Halen and your playing style because, you know, a lot of times we, we, we think of Love of a Lifetime and we, and we think of some of these uh, more ballady songs that you play and, and, and we sort of forget that you can rip on the guitar. You, you can just bloody rip. So, so talk to me about that and, and Van Halen and your playing style. Well, thank you. And, and uh, you know, Michael's my best friend and, you know, I appreciate him saying that and when you know back then everybody played eruption so you know there really wasn't anything uh special there i don't think from me but it was from from eddie and listening to eddie but i think what really inspired me about eddie was his rhythm playing and his phrasing and his songwriting with chords and riffs within the chords and the movement within the chords that really made me just blew me away of course i wanted to learn the solos because they were so uh, ahead of their time and his tone and all that stuff, you know, he was probably my biggest influence. Uh, you know, before that it was Ted Nugent and before that it was Leonard Skinner. So it was a good little graduation I had from each player in learning, not just the guitar, but learning music and how rhythm is, is really the, the foundation of the song. And that's what I really gravitated most with, I think with with Eddie was his his rhythms. Um, I mean, What's your I, favorite I Van Halen song, Bill? Oh man, I've got so many. Uh, <laughs> no, you get one. You get one. Uh, you get one. Uh, okay. So first uh, of all, it's got to be something with Sammy Hagar, obviously. Um, I, I, I love <laughs> Sammy, but I would have to get, say that I was more influenced by the, the the first four albums. All right. And I would say it would be. Uh, Oh man, yeah. Unchained, come on, Unchained. Got well, I love you, Unchained. You want me to make this easy? Well, we know yeah, what yours is, Alan. Bill? Yeah, go, go ahead. It's it's far and away. It always puts me in the same sort of frame of mind every time I hear it. I always want to turn it up, and to me, it's Head and Shoulders, their best track, especially ahead of all their damn covers. But it's Panama. And oh, what a great song. We covered that. Me, Panama for me, I mean, we can talk Eddie, the pair of us could talk Eddie forever, but Panama for me is about Alex. And it goes back to that thought that every great guitar player has to either be a drummer himself or have a great drummer behind him. Um, but for me, Panama is, is about Alex. And I think he's not acknowledged in that respect, but uh, oh. that's my he favorite huge, Van Halen song. Huge influence on our drummer Michael Foster was 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 Alex Van Halen, and and actually Alan, I don't know if you remember or not, but I sent you a couple of these songs um, as I was writing them because Mitch introduced me to you. For those who don't know, but um, and actually the reason that um, Mitch introduced you to me is because you said some kind words about my Kiss cover of Deuce, and um, I called. Good. I, thank you. I called Mitch, and I was, I was like, Mitch, 
Alan Niven said, did you hear what he said about that? I can't believe it. You know, you, you, you're, Mitch is like, oh, yeah, he's a friend of mine. I was like, no way. I said, well, please, you know, ask him if I can have his email address so I can just write him and thank him. Mitch kindly gave me your email address. I kind of, and then you, you wrote back and forth with me a lot. And um, one of the yep. things you said to me on, on some of the um, vocals was, um, you can't tether yourself to the drums so much as a singer. And um, you referenced Van Halen to that. And I thought that was uh, very, very interesting. I've tried to work on that. There's a real art to that, to singing mm-hmm. kind of behind the beat like that. As a guitar player, I try to play behind the beat. But singing behind the beat is, uh, is a lot more to it than just with a guitar, I think. You know, so I appreciate that yeah, advice. It's, it, it's a bit of a skill, and you know, if I'm using you know really glib shorthand and trying to convey that to a to a singer or a vocalist, and sometimes the two are not are separate, um, is the sense of if you really want to invest a, a little bit of credibility into your vocals, make it fucking conversational. If you're up and down on the beat all the time and dead on the beat, you lose that. But, you know, that's phrasing. It's push and pull. Make it conversational. Make it the, the best vocals to me always sounded as if the thought occurred when the person stepped up to the microphone. And as close as you can get to that in recording is the magic. Ah, It is. Uh, Bill, I'm going to put you on the spot for a second. Uh, Alan, over the years, has worked with many great guitarists. And so I'm just going to ask you, because you, you've toured with some of these guys, you've been on shows with some of these guys, M3 Festival and others. Uh, I'm going to ask you first, what do you think of Mark Kendall's playing from Great White as a guitarist? Uh, it's fantastic. Um, you know, I, I, of course, the first time I heard it was Rock Me, and it was like, wow, that's so cool. What a great bluesy and the tone, you know. And he's got the 500-pound note. He can play a, one note that weighs 500 pounds. Not many guitar players can do that. He's got the great feel. And, um, and then on the, you know, the Twice Shy record, uh, House of Broken Love is, is uh, the one that I just was like, oh, man. You know, he just uh, really brought the emotion out of that song in the soloing of, of that song. And, um, hey, the production was damn good, too. <laughs> Alan. Well, and, thank you. And you the know, songwriting for, was for pretty little, decent. English, <laughs> for, for a little English bluffer from a tiny English village, that's uh, <laughs> very overwhelming. Yeah. and, and We uh, got by. And, of course, Alan, you wrote House of Broken Love. Bill. So. Here's, here's another question for Bill. Yeah. At the time, did you have a sense of like there was the party of all time occurring on the street and we got in there, but there was that sense of, you know, there's David Bowie talking to Mick Jagger on the other side of the room over there. Um, and we snuck in through the kitchen door, you know, that sense of, do we actually deserve to be at this party? Um, did you ever have that sense? Because I've got, I've got a part B to the question. I had a sense that we were, were, were given, in um, using the analogy of, of the party, I always think of it as a race. And people say you made it. Well, did you, you know, you're making it to the party is your analogy. My analogy is kind of you made it to the race. But we made it to the starting line. And there were some amazing racers 
our sprinters, um, marathon runners in that race. And we had a chance to get to the starting line. Um, with the party, I never felt that we really um, made it into the party, so to speak, with the Bowies and the, you know, uh, Jaggers. Well, you, and, and but you found it, but you found where it was. But somebody had decided to lock the kitchen door on you. I felt like it was a challenge to to get in to get in through through the door uh, at the the big party for us. We always uh, think we're kind of. Um, looked at as a little bit like uh, who invited you, you know, within the big upper echelon of the industry. I felt that. Yeah. Well, here's my part, part B and I'm going to give it a tiny bit. I'm going to try and keep it brief, a bit of a caveat. Um, I'd like to remind you both that virtually everybody I ever worked with, I was told by the intelligentsia, the cognoscenti, and those who thought they knew that it would never work and they really weren't that good. Um, so virtually everybody I worked with, you know, starting with Motley Crue, who had been thrown out of every label in town and ended up coming down to the South Bay looking for somebody to put their record out, um, were considered an absolutely ridiculous joke. Um, you know, so everyone I looked at, people said, nah, it'll, it, it, it'll never happen. Um, but that said, I look, I look back now, and I was wondering if you felt the same. Um, I think we might have done ourselves a little bit short, because I think we did deserve to be at the party, and I think we acquitted ourselves well. Um, not just in comparison to what was being done at the time, but when I look around at what is not going on now and what is not being done now, I go, oh, my God, they don't even have a party anymore. <laughs> Very interesting, because I look back and I go, you know what, we, we, even though I felt that way then, and I still feel it a little bit now, I really step, take two steps back and I look and I go, wow, you know what, we... We got to really do it, and oddly enough, we're still doing it. I mean, fifty-five, fifty-seven shows that last year. A lot. Listen, that, that 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 says a whole bunch right now because I think if you'd come into the studio back in the day in 1986 and said, "Niv, what you're working on now is going to be on the radio in 30 years," I'd have looked at you and I'd have said, "Bill, I don't know what you're sniffing or smoking, but share it with me. I'll be happy if we get through another year." me and if we're going to get through two years i'll be thrilled i mean i had no concept that it would be as long lasting as that but you know again interesting that you saw it in a race because yes it was incredibly competitive do you know what the odds were of of what was termed success once you had got a a recording contract and this, this is a mind blower, and it blew my mind for a long time. And I sat down with a pencil and paper and went, let me figure this out, because this sounds extreme. But apparently, um, the, Peter Paterno turned around to me um, back in the day, and he said, the odds of success, once you have a recording contract, are approximately 1,000 to 1. Mm. So they just Which dropped. blew my mind. They, they they shelve most of the you know 999 
Yeah. Either get shelved or either. Yeah. Well, you know, remember back in the days there were, you know, 20, 25 labels. So you start doing that. Um, Mm -hmm. And the other thing to keep in mind is this, is that Al Gore screwed the rock and roll business as hard and as brutally as anything else did because he introduced tax legislation um, that prevented the labels from continuing to write off their speculative investment in new talent. And that, just that one act there put a knife into an awful lot of rock and roll bands because, you know, making a new album, $150,000, $200,000, no longer can you write it off. Back in the day, I don't know if you're aware of this, but back in the day when a record company had its annual fiscal meetings and prepared their budget for the coming year, they always based their their fiscal expenditures for the upcoming year on the same criteria. And that criteria was catalog sales. In other words, the whole cost of running the company for the coming year was going to be based on the income generated by the catalog. In other words, it didn't matter if you had a new hit or not. The company was fine. The company would function. And the cost of speculating on new bands came out of catalog sales. And then on top of that, you could write that off if it didn't work. I mean, the number of bands that got signed and we never even heard of was innumerable. Um, But, you know, had no idea. Al Gore. Yeah. I oh. had no idea. Thank you, Al Gore. Well, I knew the PMRC. Most don't know this. The PMRC thing that he was uh, pushing him and his wife was um, uh, not appreciated by anybody in the music business um, unless you were um, uh, you know, writing children's songs. But um, yeah, well, that's that's where he got his own own back for uh, D. Snyder making his wife look like a uh, a, a, a frumpy old uh, southern middle-aged woman true um, but but those stickers ended up helping the music business because then you'd go buy a record and it says contains whatever offensive language and you'd be like "Ooh, i'm gonna buy that i want to hear i want to hear this i mean i know i did that <laughs> so well i didn't see i did <laughs> I, I saw that I, I saw those explicit language ones and i went oh Oh, this is yeah, kind of exciting. Yeah. I got an extra ten bucks. Yeah, <laughs> let's get one of those with the sticker on it. Yeah, so so it didn't it didn't hurt, you know, it didn't hurt anybody. And uh, we'll 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 wrap up on this. Uh, the other guitarist, of course, is is Slash. I mean, we we can talk about Izzy as well. But how do you how do you look at Slash's playing? Is that one of these where you go, wow, he's got a great feel and a great tone, and and I gotta you know, maybe learn a trick or two from him or is he sort of out of your wheelhouse? How, how do you rate Slash in terms of playing? He's, uh, he's tops. You know, he just picks all the right notes. And, and to me, that's a big part of lead playing, I think you're talking about, and soloing and, and writing a solo. All the, the, the melodies that he came up with, and I don't, I don't know whether he came up with them or whether Izzy did and said, hey, Izzy said, hey, man, you're the lead guitar player. You play this. Alan could tell you that, but... You know, sweet child of mine. I mean, that's just timeless. And um, and the other the, the solos in um, in everything on the, those first two albums were so memorable and so um, perfect. Um, and at least perfect for me. I came up listening to old Aerosmith and uh, you know 
that that kind of bluesy rock stuff and um having those right phrases and and changing the syncopation and keeping everything interesting was, was something he's very gifted with i think and his tone is is you can't go wrong with les paul into a marshall and his, whatever he does with his marshall it's perfect oh yeah absolutely right well, and go ahead alan with uh, with curly he's articulate he's an intelligent individual and he's articulate and i think that crossed over into his playing because if i were to describe his playing i'd call it eloquent that it's expressive and memorable and he plays conversationally too um so that's why that that's what i found really appealing what he did that, that there was memorability memorability to uh what he played and it made some sort of sense as a statement there was an eloquence to it um because there are an awful lot of people who can play a lot of notes really quickly and it really doesn't say anything at all um you know and that for, that for me was i mean you, you listen to kendall too you know it was important to me that kendall played something that i could hum in the car on the way home from the studio um, and then it was about feel the one thing i had with slash was you know he was he's what 1920 when i first got to know him um you know he had a little bit of piss and vinegar in his soul um and i would bitch at him relentlessly about his bends because he'd sometimes or often not quite make that half step or that full step um because he was in a hurry to play the next next bit and i'd bitch at him all the time about making sure that you know he made that bend and uh bless his heart i think he mentioned that in an interview in the uh, guitar center one day, but that was my thing with him. Apart from that, I thought he was really smart in what he chose to play. Yeah, that, that's important to, to to play for the song and not overplay. There are there are some. There's, there's just a million notes, and it sounds like an angry bumblebee. And you're just like, oh, stop. Uh, you know. Uh, I'll remind the folks that you can uh, check out uh, Bill and all his music at Leverty.com, Leverty.com, and you can follow Bill on Twitter at Leverty, and of course, uh, we are hoping that now that M3 is rescheduled for next year, hopefully they can add Firehouse to the bill. If not, hopefully we can see you somewhere on the road, and uh, we need to convince CJ to put out another Firehouse record. That's that's the important thing. Right, Bill? Oh, he wants to do it, too. We he, we all want to do it. It's just a, a matter of us getting together and, and starting with that, that first song that's going to get us all excited to, to finish an album. So we're 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 all wanting to do it. We're, Make it a big one, Bill. Make it a big one. That's what we got to do, buddy. It's got to be. It's got to yeah. be where we left off, you know. If and better. Yeah, and uh, for this interview, hey, that was all she wrote, folks. Uh, thank you and uh, merci, Bill. Thank you, Alan. Always a pleasure. And uh, there we go. Wasn't that easy? That was easy. Thanks, you guys. Always a pleasure, Bill. Thank you, Alan. You're welcome, Bill. Good to talk with you. Nice Good talking to, to you, Alan. Thanks so much for your time. Both of you guys really appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, our, our pleasure and privilege. Let me. Uh, I'm going to hit stop on the recorder here.